folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac, here today with another super exciting episode. And you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you enjoy what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our patrons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. That's right. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about them in terms of the context of the podcast, societal collapse, and reconstruction. If you're interested and you're willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so there's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from my farm putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Also, we've got some content going up there right now for the next series we're going to be doing, so if you're interested in hearing some of the voices that have led a lot of these discussions that we've had, folks from Tom Wessels and so on, go check it out. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. And if this is your first episode, we highly recommend going back to the first episode of this mini-series and catching up. In this mini-series, our goal has been to challenge one of the largest questions I think the left has really struggled with when it comes to this concept of farming in a style that doesn't rely on massive petrochemical energy. And that's the question of how do we detangle colonization from agriculture, when permaculture and regenerative agriculture have such a problematic past and, in so many ways, present. We recently did a dive into permaculture in a recent episode, chronicling its history, what permaculturalists believe, and a bit about the problems associated with the practice and the movement. Now we've been diving in to look at the various examples of indigenous farming practices across the globe. And at this point, we've covered parts of Northern Europe and Japan, and we're going to be going into India for this episode, a region specifically known as the Western Ghats on the southern tip of the country and steeped heavily in its unique mountainous terrain. The agroforestry in the Western Ghats and Satayama in rural Japan are traditional land use systems with similar evolutionary trajectories. Some of their relevance was lost by the middle of the 20th century when modern agricultural technologies and urbanization engineered shifts in emphasis towards maximizing crop production. There has been, however, a resurgence of interest in traditional land use systems recently in view of their ability to provide ecosystem services. Both agroforestry and satayama are recognized for their biological diversity and have the potential to also serve as carbon forests. The Western Ghats of India and the Satyama landscapes in Japan are geographically diverse regions, and they both exist as the opposite of Norway in terms of climate. Yet there are remarkable similarities in the traditional land use practices and physiographic features of these territories. A series of rolling hills and plateaus intersected by deep valleys characterize both. The hill and valley farming system of the high ranges of the Western Ghats and the Satyama system of Japan also have resemblances. 
For both, rice forms the predominant crop in the lowlands and often terrace plateaus, bordered by homesteads and various forms of managed woodlands. Forests occur on the upper reaches of these land use patterns and provide many goods and services. Managed ecosystems have long existed in apparent equilibrium with the natural landscape at both locations. The biogeographic region of the Western Ghats is the mountain range running along the western margin of the Deccan Plateau in peninsular India. The term Ghats implies the terraced appearance of the mountains, and the steps of the terrace are indicative of successive lava flows, which were also crucial in the Satyama landscape. Steep-sided valleys, narrow gorges, and waterfalls are distinctive features of this landscape. The steep seaward slopes are deeply dissected by rivers and streams. Rich natural resource endowments in terms of vegetation, fish, animal, and soil make this region a mega-biodiverse region, home to more unknown species outside of the rainforest than anywhere else on Earth. So I think we see that there's a lot of similar conditions in this part of India with what we saw in Japan when we looked at the Satyama landscape. These communities seem to be living in similar parts of those regions, which I think ends up playing into some some of the things that we'll see that are very similar. I, I think that's not a coincidence that we will end up seeing that these parallel conditions and habitats lead to very similar traits in terms of how they live, despite the fact that this, this region of India is uh, significantly warmer than Japan. There's a lot of similarities, and it'll be interesting to see the things that are not quite similar and how those play out and maybe tie into some other parts of the world. Yeah, I want to look at a map. What uh, What's the difference in latitude? I'm not sure, but it the Western Ghats is like literally the farthest southernmost point of India. Okay. Uh, so it's it's pretty close to the equator. Okay. Um, so it's pr- practically rainforest conditions. Um, with the dry season there the long history of the climate actually has played into what they their farming practices are and we're gonna see how that has evolved with history cool so when we had discussed the satyama woodlands and the role of things like coppicing for products it was clear by the collapse of diversity after the farming practices were abandoned that the woodlands themselves were extensively managed however in the case of the satyama very little thought was given to the understory outside of grasses and the occasional fruit-bearing bushes. While agroforestry in the western Ghats involves key productive and protective functions and adopts an intensive management style in limited ways. We can look at differences in things like the canopy architecture, where in the western Ghats there's more of a multi-tiered structure of agroforestry where there are layers of trees, versus the more or less unitary canopy of the Satyama because everything was cut at the same time, and land ownership patterns, where in India, most of the lands are owned and managed privately versus community or local government and mostly abandoned in Japan, uh, which also pose their own unique challenges in the transfer and application of knowledge gained in one system to the other. For the folks that don't recall from the previous episode, we had chatted a little bit about agroforestry, and agroforestry generally is focused on the different layers of the trees within the canopy and their utilization, as well as occasionally ground cover and even bushes and vines, each which may have a specific function for either the environment or for us as the consumer. 
much like the Satayama landscape, the hill slopes were largely covered by natural or managed woodlands, and the lower parts were generally terraced paddy fields, serving as sources of fuel, food, and timber, besides providing an array of ecosystem service benefits. To illustrate this point further, the traditional farmers of the Western Ghats typically maintained three land parcels, situated at different altitudinal zones within a micro-watershed. There were the low-lying paddy fields providing a significant part of the food and feed requirements, the garden homestead-type space situated close to the paddy fields and sustaining a mix of plant and tree crop systems, and the upland plot with mixed tree cover, including forest trees for meeting the grazing, organic manure, and soil conservation needs. The nutrient subsidies from the woodlands that is, if you recall from the Satayama landscape, the removal of various biomass from the woods to build the soil in those intensive gardening areas helped both the traditional western ghats and the Japanese farmers to maintain soil fertility and productivity. In particular, the unidirectional flow of materials such as leaves and litter for manure and mulch, the fruits and nuts for food, gave green fodder and wood for fuel, poles, timber, and various other non-timber products with essentially no reverse flows, helping to keep the landscape at the bottom rich. These indigenous farmers also used traditional ecological knowledge to manure crop plants and trees. For example, the Western Ghats farmers integrated the shade-tolerant crop species in the understory. A case in point is the tropical home gardens. Maximization of productivity was never targeted or attained and hence industrial crop production techniques were seldom employed in the home gardens. And I want to reinforce this point because I feel like I can't say it enough. The goal in ecology has never been around maximization of productivity, but the diversity of small, efficient components, which make the whole system more efficient, not just that one component. It's this thinking that I believe has been fundamentally lost in a lot of modern agriculture, and why, despite having species of chickens, for example, that can grow to full size in a few short months, we haven't made much progress because those same chickens need specialized food because nothing in nature is nutrient-dense enough to feed them. Is this really progress? The way that it's shown with the um, indigenous people in Western Ghats, that they had the plants that they were using as food and resources, but they also cultivated plants that they weren't using at all because it benefited their resources that they were using. And vice versa. So like supplemental plants right. and things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about not just this, what they're doing specifically in the Western Ghats, but a lot of these indigenous farming practices is this idea of making things efficient for their systems, not just making them efficient for um, maximization of that singular item. Like mm -hmm. to pick on the chicken example, they were never focused on making the fattest, quickest to get fat chicken, but making the chicken that could survive and thrive with little to no inputs from them on their environment. And as long as they met that condition, then yes, they would selectively breed for those that could survive and thrive on that specific plot of land without any inputs. But the idea of creating these supply chains that we see today wasn't really a part of that equation. Right. And so I think that points to, you know, we talk about complex systems all the time. We keep coming by perfect examples of that, where with growing these fatter chickens that are easier to grow, quicker to grow, easier to eat or whatever, that we've tried to simplify the supply chain. And in doing so, we've made it unsustainable. And like almost more complex because of those different different inputs 
to maintain that simplicity. Right. We end up having to uh, pay more in for the same results. Out. Yeah. We just have this very big infrastructure that's already been put in place. So we, we don't uh, do a good job of calculating for that mechanization and those sunk costs of building up that infrastructure to make, yes, that pellet might only cost or that pellet might cost less than hay or whatever. Mm -hmm. But are you truly factoring in the full cost of that mechanization of all that equipment that has had to be put in to do that? Right. And uh, like what's going into growing the food that becomes pelletized? Whereas this seems to be more focused or generally we seem to be seeing more focus on this idea of efficiency for the system and the conditions, not just efficiency for the sake of maximum productivity. Which seems more like a whole picture approach rather yeah. than... Like I, I think it's really interesting Like we, if you talk about like dogs, for example, we have all these breeds. But if if the dogs go in the wild, they ultimately end up looking like wolves or coyotes because if they're out there for a few generations that's kind of their natural state and that's the only way they can survive the ones that are overly big or overly small are just not going to survive mm -hmm. and like i like i think about like rabbits like you can raise rabbits but they've been kept in captivity for so long that to keep them uh, it's dangerous to keep them around wild rabbits because of all the diseases that those rabbits have like you have to vaccinate them and all these other things mm -hmm. which like i i'm not saying don't vaccinate your rabbits if you have them but like it speaks to the fact that our food system is so disconnected from its wild counterpart that it can't even be in the same place and i'm not sure if that's success even if it is like more efficient quote unquote right and how do you progress forward from that yeah when you're detached from the nature part and you know, we, we've talked about like this idea when we started this this mini series about this idea of, you know, how do we come to terms with the problems of permaculture and this idea that we have to make amends for the problems in the past, but the goal isn't to go backwards because that doesn't solve any of the problems. Culture dies when it doesn't evolve. And that's kind of where we are also in terms of agriculture. Like we can't evolve or go back. There's no way to just go back to how things used to be. Right. And um, in terms of even like our the animals that we raise for food we can't just pretend that we're going to go back to the you know the ancestral chicken that we raised that all modern chickens come from that that's not really how it's going to work but we have to look at the best examples of what can move forward and how we can selectively breed for those without taking it outside of that condition of the world right with that uh foresight in mind of yeah. you know we've seen the other side now and we know better well, a glimpse. <laughs> yeah, like we should know better, at least theoretically. Anyways. Yeah, and this, I think, ties back to this idea of the home gardens, where they do have these landscapes that are full of these really rare and endemic species that are remnants of the primary forests that were primarily untouched by the local inhabitants for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Not only are these little homesteads full of these unique species, but they're also still able to supplement food systems and additionally exist with human interaction, something we don't traditionally assign to landscapes with these types of old growth forests. We generally think of old growth forests as these places that humans should not be a part of, whereas in this case, it's the exact opposite, where those old growth forests exist because of the human interaction within them. And it's within these communities that we can see quite literally lifestyles being centered around their ecology 
and making what you might call the soul of nature the location of our domestication. Agroforestry systems where trees are grown with crops and or sometimes with animals and interacting combinations in space or time dimensions abound in the Western Ghats. In particular, plantation agriculture involving coffee, tea, and spices in association with a wide spectrum of trees, rice-based cropping systems, coconut-based cropping systems, and all the pervasive homestead farming systems dominate the region. Historically, plow agriculture was prevalent in Wayanad, one of the high-altitude locations in Western Ghats, as early as the megalithic age between, help me out with these. 400 BC and 400 AD. It's a long time. And spices like pepper, ginger, and cardamom have been grown there since the early Middle Ages. So Andy did research one town which provided a specific example of what this looks like in modern times. The Bonswara village landscape is differentiated into three land use, land cover types. Settled farming on privately owned terraced slopes with scattered multi-purpose trees, degraded community forest land, and degraded abandoned agricultural land. The degraded lands have negligible tree cover and were exposed to uncontrolled grazing. The village is surrounded by the government forests. Boo. Through two... <laughs> Though two sets of crops, one growing in the warm rainy season and the other in the cold winter season, could be harvested in a year, a farm field is fallowed during the winter season once in a two-year period. Ag three agricultural crops are harvested over a period of two years. Finger millet, barnyard millet, and paddy are the dominant crops of the rainy season and wheat, lentil, and rapeseed of the winter season. Each family has at least a pair of cows and bulls. Leaf litter from the forest is used as bedding material in the cattle shed, and the litter mixed with cattle dung is used in manure in the crop fields. Cattle feed is met partly from crop byproducts and tree fodder from the private farms, and partly from grazing and lopping off fodder trees in the community and the government forests. Tree planting has formed a component of land rehabilitation strategy built on indigenous knowledge, local needs, and the people's participation. The species selected for plantation were chosen by the village community from a wider list of traditionally valued and naturally regenerating tree species. So basically, people chose which trees to plant based on like a community vote and like what was needed. I'm not or sure. How do you think that works? So they're trying to rebuild this land. Part of the challenge is that obviously India's got a long history of colonization. And a lot of these regions in the last 400 years or so were clear-cut for timber, planted for specific plants that the British were looking for. And now they're dealing with the repercussions after thousands of thousands of years of living on this land peacefully and in accordance with the ecological conditions. So what I think is really interesting here is that we're seeing these people try to survive on a landscape that once did sustain them, but no longer really can, as we see by the fact that so much of the landscape has been denuded and that they, they're trying to uh, regenerate some of these trees and these multi-crop species and things like that in order to uh, maximize productivity from the land that can't sustain them. Right, and such a prevalent problem that we've been talking about where you can't go back and you have to move forward with what you have now. That doesn't mean just accept that that world is gone, but take the benefits of that system, that, that indigenous ancestral knowledge, and in this case, I think it might be a little bit different because 
those people are still there and the British are not. So if they want to, they can. I, the challenge is the landscape isn't really developed for that anymore. And I didn't mean like the hope for what was flourishing before it couldn't come back is gone, but just sort of the answers and the way that they would have fixed those problems then might not necessarily work for now. Yeah. And obviously what I mean, you can't just like plug and play solutions that worked then. Yeah. The wild card is really climate change. Right. Uh, And we'll see that a little bit later and how that's played into some of the challenges. So in these agroforestry systems, the ecological functions of the trees are various in terms of what they provide. Being on the, on the steep slopes, they provide intensive soil protection and water control. And obviously, a lot of the legume species that exist in these regions provide soil fertility maintenance, as well as conservation of biodiversity, but by providing niche habitats for various species, as well as their various functions of production, such as wood, food, fodder, medicines, and so on, which are remarkably expressed in agroforestry systems derived from forests, such as the coffee-based system of the Korg district, or imitating them, such as in the home gardens of Kerala in the Western Ghats. The home gardens of Kerala constitute the predominant farming system of the state. They are small in size, just around one acre, and traditionally coconut-based, being widely used for food, energy, and building materials. Home gardens are typically multi-layered systems characterized by a high density and diversity of the tree component. Density is commonly found between 150 and 300 trees, shrubs, and palms per acre, and the number of species out of those 300 is more than 120, according to various surveys, although floristic composition and density may vary significantly at plot level according to site conditions and the farmer's needs and their strategies, which that is wild. That is an incredible amount of plants. So, uh, like, think um, about having um, like 150 um, fruit trees on one acre. Right. And it doesn't sound like they have a lot of livestock in this specific home garden area. So, I'm, I'm guessing things are grown pretty close together. Yeah. I'm, I'm just picturing, you know, everybody's backyard garden just all mishmashed together. And there are some plants that sort of look the same, but they're sort of different and they're all different species yeah and just kind of thrown together yeah like i don't even know if i could name 150 fruit trees or 150 fruit and nut trees right like I, that's that's such a high number i think i could probably list like 30 40 and i mean they could be incorporating cultivars in those figures but even still that's an incredible amount of diversity for one small region and then of course people can trade food mm. so like the the access to unique ingredients is just incredible and I think this also, not necessarily this, but what we're seeing is a very interesting mix of what we saw in Norway as well as in Japan, where in Norway we had those the multi-location farming systems, which was by demand of the fact that the landscape was so limited. And in Japan, we had singular, but then there were clusters of houses going up and uh, maximizing their understanding and their local uh, microclimates. Whereas here, we're kind of seeing a weird mishmash of that. So yeah, I I just think it's really cool and interesting and speaks a bit to the fact that there is no one size fits all when it comes to how humans integrate in the the environment and the ecology. And it seems like the area is super diverse in terms of food, where it's not just, you know, things you put on a plate and eat, 
Whereas the spices and the seasonings that come from the area, do you think that's has to do more with climate or nutrients or? Yeah, I'm guessing like, climate. And like, I think it's also one of the challenges or not challenges, but one of the things that makes it unique is that it's kind of cut off because of the mountain range that runs through. Mm-hmm. Not completely, but enough that I think it probably does do some, it has some limiting factors in animal diversity and plant diversity in that region being extremely localized. So yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting parallels that we start to see coming through these regions. Getting back to these home gardens, though, these systems also not just have that density of plants for edibles and uh, other uti- uh, utility use, they also provide a extremely high canopy coverage. And between the canopy coverage and the density of the plants and the year-round growing, despite having the steep slopes and the high rainfall of this environment, uh, soil erosion levels are incredibly low. Interestingly, when comparing successive developmental stages of land use systems based on forest clearing, which is still a common practice in the forests of India, whether they're protected or not, organic matter appears to rebuild to high and sustainable levels in well-established agroforestry systems and more efficiently than in other ones, thanks to the capacity of trees to build soil fertility. The other main characteristic of the home gardens is their high productivity and diversity of production to satisfy the primary needs of the farmers. Food, with the exception of rice which is cultivated in those adjacent valleys, fuel, and timber. According to various surveys, apart from the coconut, the dominant woody perennial crops include black pepper, rubber, cashew, jackfruit, mango, tamarind, teak, as well as a bunch of other things that you've probably never even heard of. Yeah, like the betel nut yeah. and the arachnid nut. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff coming out of here. Sounds like a spider with like a hard shell on it. Right? Sounds fucking scary as hell. It's like a crab. <laughs> <laughs> if it moves, I'm going to shoot it, I swear. Uh, the home gardens of Kerala provide almost 80% of the total wood requirements of the state, while timber is primarily supplemented by imports. Therefore, home gardens appear to be a really appropriate way to reduce pressure on natural forests and contribute to the environmental balance of this fragile mountain area and speaks to the ability of small communities to build their own sustainability. Tree uses may vary with time, and accordingly, traditional agroforestry systems, like any other system, are indeed subject to adaptation or disappearance. Demographic and economic conditions may notably induce drastic changes in the livelihood of rural communities and directly affect agroforestry systems and landscapes. This is the case for shifting cultivation, a once common cropping system of semi-nomadic population in the tropical forest zone. In the mountains of northeast India, the system locally called Joom by the tribals is based on slashing and burning of the natural vegetation, which after a short period of cultivation, is allowed to regrow for 30 to 60 years in its longest cycle. But under demographic pressure, the cycle has been shortened from two to three years, which provides insufficient slash material and has meant change to sedentary systems of agriculture at the expense of forest and soil sustainability. While Northeast India comes with its own unique climate and challenges, burning as a practice was applied on and off throughout the past 4,000 years of history in Western Ghats. A lot of this research is stuff that we kind of had some rough estimations of, but over the last 20 or 30 years with things like pollen records and things like that, Mm -hmm. we can pin down much better uh, a lot of these dates. In in the Western Ghats, 
the traditional burning practices were really prevalent before 2000 BC, and then again, like 200 to 600 AD. Mm -hmm. And then when the British showed up, it came back in because they just wanted to cut down all of the, the lumber, timber, and burn everything off so they could reseed and do it again. And um, that, that stayed pretty common until the 1950s. And generally speaking, outside of the colonization time, these fire periods that had existed were really tied with periods of extended dry seasons, limited rainy seasons. So they seemed to burn more when it was there was a higher risk of a non-man-made fire. One of the benefits of burning is that it, it's a quick way to get nutrients back into the soil. And it also reduces the pressure of, you know, wildfires and things like that. Mm -hmm. Not only does it re return a lot of those nutrients to the soil, but it also limits animals' ability to hide in the woods. So if you're relying on primarily uh, hunting and things like that, it increases your odds that you're going to be able to be, be able to hunt and survive. So that's obviously a, a very important piece of this. Which all this kind of points to this varied land management strategy, which is tied both to the climate changes and um, just cultural changes. I mean, that could be due to, you know, changes in demographics. It could be due to population density. It could be due to politics, politics. Shit. Could, and there's a lot of different components. But much like what we saw in Japan, there seems to be this ebb and flow of the way the relationship is uh, with nature and humanity and the way the climate evolves as well as how the communities evolve. And that there, what might not be sustainable today might be sustainable tomorrow in terms of those practices. Or alternatively, that there are multiple sustainable practices. And for some reason or another, groups switch from one to the other. So one of the things I thought was interesting, particularly around this conversation, is that it was around 1550 or 1600 or so where there was a, a huge emergence of sacred forest groves, which protected that plant diversity. And whether or not that was concurrent with colonization or a recognition that maybe there had to be some kind of protection from those burns became more evident. Uh, that was really, I think, important in terms of trying to maintain that diversity. And we, we kind of see that today a little bit with the idea of like the protected lands and things like that, particularly around old growth forests as being um, lands, especially in the United States that get protected. So while the, the example that you gave was based in uh, northeastern India, and I mean, these people, especially throughout history, didn't see themselves as like a common denominator as like Indian or anything like that. A lot of those similar practices kind of bleed into each other's cultures. And th it's not a coincidence that they have some similar practices. While in Northeast India, those pra those farming, the slash and burn practices survived a lot longer and more consistent. In the Western Ghats, that wasn't quite the case. And I'm willing to bet that has to do with the fact that they had more rainfall and uh, it was just a, a more humid and wet climate compared to eastern India. So while all these systems have ebbed and flowed throughout the region, the feedback loops have proven over the long term to show that together, collectively, these practices were very sustainable and show that there are really multiple ways to manage similar landscapes. And what is uniquely interesting, I think, about what they did here is that while India does have the most complex and diverse ecosystems in the world, Part of what makes it most interesting is that human intervention is a huge component of that. While we do have these periods of intense burnings, the pollen records show that after the burnings, there's actually 
higher diversity than before the burnings. And some of the assumptions, or I guess the sciences researchers have assumed that a lot of this has to do with keeping these like areas that are safe from burns so that species continue to survive. However, it puts so much selection pressure on them and creates all these different environments and these much like in Japan, how we saw these two different like unique conditions. So you'd have the the frogs that could only yeah yeah. those microclimates where like these frogs can only live in these types of patties that exist nowhere else on earth they were doing this as well as also having one of the most otherwise stable climates in the world much like the rainforest which allows for maximum diversity and then they're creating these very unique conditions around that diversity consistently um which has created Uh, like we said, one of the most diverse places in the world. And that's explicitly because of human intervention, as opposed to in spite of human intervention, Uh, which I think is a really important nuance that speaks again to our role within the environment and that we can either be the most destructive thing on the planet like we are doing right now, or one of the most beneficial things on the planet. And it, it all comes down to our relationship with the environment and nature. People are constantly searching for where the Garden of Eden is on Earth, and we're supposed to be tending it. Like, it, we're, we're just not doing it. Yeah. So while these human-made fires have existed over time, fires in these forests rarely occur naturally because of the fact that there, there's very little kindling and there's high moisture. So those fires that do exist have been primarily done by human intervention. While these practices have been mostly set aside outside of small localized fires, which continue to this day, the lack of management through fire as the climate has dried out over the last decades, uh, natural fires have begun taking a hold of this region again. This intensification of these fires is particularly alarming in light of the projected weakening of the Indian summer monsoon, which is expected to exacerbate rainfall extremities in the Indian subcontinent, extending the length of hot dry months. Such enhanced regional aridity could mean drier fuel loads, resulting in more frequent spread of fires beyond the agricultural lands, which is primarily where these burns continue to happen to return those nutrients quickly to the soil, even though it's not always necessarily a good practice. By developing a historical perspective, we can think about region-specific management information for the biodiversity conservation in places like the Western Ghats and wet tropical agroforestry systems at large. By looking at how these lands have been managed in the past and likely during periods of similar droughts, which can help guide our management of these landscapes to maintain the biological diversity. It's important to note when we have this conversation about human intervention with the landscape, particularly in India, that it is much more ancient than most of the world, with evidence of human intervention on the landscape existing for at least 80,000 years. While the roots of agriculture pastoralism in the region can be traced back to at least 3000 BC, the agroforestry systems in particular is thought to be in existence for the past 2000 years, Evidence points to the fact that fire management was applied during periods of dryness over a long period of time, like I said, often hundreds of years. Over the course of 4,000 years, plant diversity changes lag behind the fires by as many as 250 to 500 years, but after each dry spell with intensive fire management, during which plant diversity falls, diversity jumps to higher levels than before the dry spell. Amid the first fire period nearly 2,000 years ago, the plant diversity substantially decreased around the year 500. Considering the strong positive correlation between the canopy cover 
and the plant diversity in the sense that forests tend to help maintain stasis in terms of regulating ground temperature and moisture levels, it's easily possible that the sustained biomass burning coupled with enhanced aridity could have resulted in landscape fragmentation and a consequent reduction of plant diversity. By opening and increasing the canopy gaps and creating snags and deadwood patches, the prolonged use of fire can increase the number of ecological niches for when the fires are no longer utilized. This evolving complex... Hang on, sorry. Help me unpack that. because So during the periods where there were no fires, diversity would start to fall and then they would do the slash and burn and that would further decrease the diversity, but then the lag period would kick in where around 250 years later it would boom. Is that what you, is that how that works? So what it is is that you have a period of intense fires and it either burns out plants that have existed or it severely reduces the amount that can survive it. But what comes back after is different because of the fact that everything starts to evolve, but there's like all this new room to evolve within. Mm -hmm. So it takes, you know, we we had talked uh, in the past about, especially things like annuals, they can evolve quickly to their new conditions. It only takes a few years to really create a new cultivar. And that's kind of what they were seeing by manipulating the landscape and increasing those canopy gaps. So those new places where new growth could come in and taking different places of like, Uh, new creating new environments like new ecological niches so like deadwood snags and things like that Mm -hmm. where animals could find new ways to specialize because the environments got more complexity Mm -hmm. they're essentially forcing new diversity so like if you think about like a coral reef right so like you've got all these species that exist within the layers of the coral reef and doing this you're cutting say you just cut a middle hole in the coral reef it's going to cause some habitat loss and all this other stuff, especially if you keep repeatedly doing it. But eventually you're going to create a new microclimate or micro whatever biome within that coral reef that as long as it's being done long enough for species to realize it's a new adaptation of their environment and they can start evolving for those holes, the new species are going to come in and fill those gaps while by keeping the rest of the coral reef intact, they're all still connected together. So like the species that need to continue to travel through the coral reef itself can pass that new gap and still exist while this new niche is being created. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Does that make sense? It makes sense, yeah. It's just crazy that I'm I'm just caught up on like what's the term for like pyro farmer, like just farmer with fire. Slash and burn farmer. Slash and burn farmer. Yeah. So I I think this speaks to again sounds metal as shit our ability to <laughs> our ability to like take a landscape that's already super diverse and through human management make it even more diverse and in doing so not just more diverse but more resilient because eventually what happens as those canopy holes start filling in and things like that is you you have that stronger selection pressure so while all those species won't make it forever or whatever they you know their their environment that they're designed for may mostly disappear what's going to happen is they're going to find new environments in that ecological system where they can fit in and add more diversity and more complexity to these systems so it's just it's super cool yeah it's like you know it's like if you i don't know i i don't even know anything to really compare it to 
It's That's just, why we're doing this shit, yeah, man. It's pretty cool. So this speaks to, again, that evolving complex relationship that humans have with the landscape. And all of this was really destroyed in when the British arrived on Indian soils and began colonizing the region over 300 years ago, Boom. which brought, yeah, which brought with them those Western European understandings of land management and timber production, which banned the practice of slash and burn and forced massive monocrop stands first for timber and later for coffee. They did burn when they wanted to get rid of everything, but they didn't allow burning as a farming practice. Fortunately, like I said, we do have these tools now to trace the history of the landscape and utilize some data to start looking at things like rainfall, burning practices, species diversity and density, and evidence of human habitation on the landscape. With all of this knowledge, we can look to our past to help guide our decisions to find ways to take on the unprecedented challenges climate change brings to our landscape today. It's a weird episode. I feel like we didn't cover the farming piece somehow. Right. Well, we didn't really. It's well, it wasn't really like intensive fa- intensive farming management. They fucking slashed and burned everything and let everything grow back, and that's how they did it. Yeah, with uh, and it seems like it, it seems like it fucking worked, right? Like, yeah, I mean, that it seems like so many of the food, the plants in their landscapes were either selectively bred because they were edible, or they were just fortunate in the fact that they were that a majority of the plants in their landscape were edible. They could truly rely on this concept of agroforestry in that the forest provided the food for people and all they had to do was maintain it outside of those rice patties for the most part. So as always, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, give us a review on iTunes, recommend us to your friends and send us a message on Instagram or throw us a buck on Venmo or subscribe to Patreon or do any of those things to help support us. We really appreciate all, or of, all of the above very much. My name is Elliot. This is Andy. And this is the Poor Pearls Almanac.